This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, and it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text on 2057. You can send me a email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. I have a special treat today. I have a wonderful couple who have built the most amazing garden and are sharing that with the world through books and videos and workshops and courses. And it's Neva and Yotam Kay. Now, tell me the name of your farm. The name of the farm is Pakaraka Farm. Say that slowly. Pakaraka. Pakaraka. Like the paka, tree, you know the paka, tree? Pakaraka. Pakaraka. Pa, like a pa, and karaka, like the tree. Karaka. Pakaraka. Oh, I'm going to struggle. <laughs> now, tell me, you describe it as a regenerative farm and a permaculture farm. Mm-hmm. What is the definition of those two things? So um, when we talk about regenerative, I, I guess the term in itself has two different meanings and it's a little bit different, I think, farm level and garden level. But uh, in, in one basic meaning is uh, we, for example, have 180 acres of, of regenerating native bush on the farm. Yes. And But also we do talk about... Um, you know when we when we try and make sure that our soil is alive that we are um yeah building soil health building ecosystem health that's essentially what and, it, and yeah. i'll add to that is that yeah, yeah we're making the soil better and also richer in carbon specifically yeah, yeah. okay so better. building up the organic matter naturally yeah yes and, and uh, way that just yeah please and uh modern, if I can use that word, or technologically advanced farming practice post-World War II Mm. is not to worry about the carbon, just the nutrients, and not build up the compost. So, yeah, you're right. There's a lot after the Green Revolution, which is uh, wrongly named after World War II, where the chemicals had gotten into into agriculture. Uh, people have been relying, or many farmers have been relying on chemical fertilizers to just bring in those nutrients in a very uh, purified form, which actually usually makes the usually um, decreases the amount of both carbon and living forms in the soil. Whereas when you look at organic farming, you're actually looking at not feeding the plants directly through compost and other fertilizers, but actually the primary part is to create a very lush living soil ecology that then those those nutrients get uh, available to the plants by the action of the of the soil biology about the living microorganisms and that mm. food web. And permaculture, I got regenerative yeah. uh, farming, <laughs> that's uh-huh. building up the soil and the carbon and the compost. What's permaculture? Permaculture is actually a design uh, methodology, so it can be applied onto land-based project, but it can be applied in other contexts too. And it's got uh, primary ethics, which are earth care, people care, and fair share. So you have to say that slower for me. <laughs> and it's got so it's got the primary ethics, the permaculture ethics, earth care, earth people care, care, people care, fair share. 
fascia. Got it. Okay. And then um, it's it's really about um, sort of observing and creating um, loops rather than so you know creating uh, nutrient loops, creating energy cycles. Um, there's sort of this idea in permaculture that there's no such thing as waste. Yes. Um, so sort of you know really thinking about the movement of of matter and energy through your system um there's uh a, a, a permac- there's a quite a variety like the 12 permaculture principle the 12 permaculture that's principles, one set of principles yes. um which are, are really great um and it's just sort of yeah guidance so when you're looking at so if, so if, for example you are using it on a on a land in a land-based context you might um use different um design principles and different sort of ways of thinking to consider how might I create something that um that apply that applies to all so what that. I'm what I'm taking from that is that the regenerator far- farming is sort of what we do in our home gardens and we put compost and we care for the soil and we build up the earthworms and the microorganisms and we get a good ecology going in our soil so we get this nice rich soil that has living things in it and it's an ecosystem mm-hmm. but permaculture is sort of next level is that is that the understanding that i'm getting here it's like another level to that i think for me permaculture would be what i what i think about before i started the garden i'm thinking where do I put the garden? Where do I put my chicken so it's easy for me to take any scraps from the garden to the chicken? Where do I, how do I organize my watering so the water flow through the land in the most efficient way that retains the most water and so uh, forth? Yeah, I'd say that permaculture is, it is like on a different plane, as you're saying. It's a different um, parallel system that that helps design and, and then has a lot of different types of tools in the toolbox. And there's no just one method of permaculture. No, and so, okay. yeah, it, it is. I feel I always have these oops moments because I've had a lot of changes in the past couple of years and I've started gardening mm-hmm. and um, which I'm loving. But I always have these oops moments because people say, oh, and you do it like this. And I think, oh, I never did that. And I've sort of done my garden. Oh, I'll put that there. And oh, I better put some water on. Oh, I might get some chooks. And I haven't actually thought it through. And I'm feeling one of those oop moments. And I saw the pictures on your webpage. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, you're farm your garden is stunningly beautiful and it's luxuriant and it's clearly from that original design a lot of it is with that original design and we've came with a lot of background um, nearly of a decade of work around gardens and permaculture and and um um, I, I don't know if that's surprised or not, but I would do things differently now slightly if I oh, could. Oh, well, that's good because but I'm yeah. like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's a learning evolving yeah. process. It's and a part living of, system, right? Yeah. And I mean, part of it is exactly that it is an organic system in the way that that things can change and, and looking at observation and receiving feedback loops and making changes. I mean, we're really happy with 
a lot of fundamental things between, for example, when we, um, many of the pictures you've seen are our primary garden that we established in 2015, whereas we've established, um, three years ago, we established a new garden and we've done things um, slightly different. And so, uh, for example, in our first garden, we've done everything by hand. And so we have terraced because we are on a significant slope um, on in our main in our main quarter acre gardens. And so we have we've we've terraced things and ma- basically made our garden beds um, on contour, so perpendicular to the slope. Oh wow! And I can talk more about this, but uh, if you want, but um, yeah, or we well, can leave it for later. Just for anyone listening that's got their uh, listening and they have their computer here, look up Packer Racker Farm, all one word co.nz and while you're listening uh you can be watching and seeing because there's uh videos and beautiful pictures um and also there's wonderful courses and two beautiful books uh for sale and it's not often you have your breath taken away when you look at a web page <laughs> on a garden but this one will it's like something out of old England and its beauty. So extremely well done. Now, I'm going to be rude because Yotam, is that the correct, correct pronunciation? Yotam? It's a hard one, and I don't say it myself often uh, in the correct way, but if I concentrate, um, Yotam. Yotam. Yes. That's the boy and Neva. Did I get that correct? correct. That's yeah. the lady. So um, that's where we are. And they're a wonderful couple. Um, how did you get into Neva? Was it you first or Yotam? Who, or did you find it separately and then come together? How did you arrive in, in this wanting to be regenerative permaculture farmers? Maybe not that, but to be farming differently. Where did that arise? Um, yeah, it, it actually did happen separately for each of us. And each of us had been lucky that uh, we spent during our civil service in Israel time in organic farms and discovered organic farming that way. And we met in university studying um, interdisciplinary environmental studies. And mm. one of our courses there was also in sustainable agriculture. And and, and then we took co- you know courses in sustainable law and sustainable education and Lots and lots of of things, but when we sort of talked to, together about, well, what do we do next? Where do we feel like we can make an impact? We can be the change. We can have our hands in it. Uh, we felt that agriculture was was the place where we can do that, and from there we started, yeah, extensive uh, learning into permaculture, f- further learning, I would say, and uh, yeah, that we were very young, so we've been doing this together for. 17 years now yeah how wonderful how very very wonderful you'd be surprised to know that i did a master's degree in interdisciplinary environmental studies awesome and i taught environmental studies uh funnily enough we talked of sustainability but it didn't become a big thing uh until Mm. the brundtland report and then um, the Resource Management Act. So um, I'm sort of almost returning to my roots and having this conversation, but I never saw it, funnily enough, much to my chagrin and erroneous 
thinking and behavior as a thing that you did. <laughs> to me, it was like a policy thing and a political mm. thing and getting policies and changing the world because I was young and arrogant. And now I realize that um, far better to do and I inspire guess others. All the things, eh? Yeah, yeah. We, I'm some, we're sometimes, in our good days, we're really happy where we are and what we're doing. In our other good days, oh, we should have go, I should have gone into, poli yeah. into politics or into policy. No, you're doing, a, <laughs> you're everything, doing everyone. Wonderf wonderfully right because um, you're living close to the earth. Um, so you came to New Zealand. Was that your first place that you set up once you'd left Israel? So we've been, we've um, been doing... traveling and uh, volunteering in farms and uh, eco-villages and places uh, very much all over. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Europe. That's our dog knocking on the door, sorry. Huh? <laughs> and, um, and we spent time in Costa Rica. That was really awesome uh, to be in the jungle and see. In Costa Rica, you know, they say you put a stick in the ground and it grows. It's just so different. It was amazing. Really amazing. Yeah. And then we came back to Israel and then we came to New Zealand. Yeah. And I have a lot of family here in New Zealand. My granddad um, I had was born here and I've got my family here since the oh, 1840s. Wow. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so it was a lot of connections. We've got lots of loving relationships here. That's amazing. So yeah. you came to uh, ready-made ancestry and large extended family mm. of people that had been living here a long, long time. Yes. Yeah. My goodness. Um, is it rude to ask they would be Jewish? Yes. Yeah, it's the Nathan family. Uh, oh, okay, of course. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, they're like Nathan and, and the beer and the, and yeah. the and, So yeah, you so have, yeah, family. that's a huge family in New Zealand. Yes. Um, on a kibbutz, are they farming regeneratively and um, in a <laughs> permaculture way, or does it vary? It, it does varies. Vary, it yeah. varies. And we spend time in, in various different kibbutzim, and some of them, uh, one place that at least. Well, two, several for sure. A few places we've been to that are all, all like really organic. Uh, there's one place that's very dedicated, Kibbutz Rotan, if anyone is ever going, um, dedicated to. Um, teaching permaculture, Ktora, uh, where we met, is a kibbutz that has both sort of that sustainable agriculture and then they also have other elements, so it kind of depends on also individual members taking a project. And I you know, see. And, and, and does a kibbutz have a sort of community structure where they decide things and they could decide to set up in a particular way and farm in a particular pattern? Yes, definitely. I mean, part of the sad thing is that a lot of the kibbutzim who were not very uh, successful with their industry um, were had collapsed. So there no, is not it's collapsed. They privatized. Privatized. So let's okay. not go into the whole history yeah, of kibbutzim. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, I brought that in. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to. But, uh, but, but yeah, no, different kibbutzim hard. are doing different things. Mm. Yeah. So when did you come? I gotta look at it every time. I've got a I tell everyone this. I got a dyspraxia. I've worked out it late in life because I have a little son who has it, and I realize mm -hmm. I have it. And mm -hmm. I can read extremely well. I'm not dyslexic or anything, but I struggle with unfamiliar words. Even familiar words I struggle with. I gotta very much concentrate. It's very tiring. 
And when I come across a new word or someone's um, name, no matter how hard I try, I mangle it. Pakaraka. I got it right. Pakaraka. <laughs> That's perfect. When did you come to Pakaraka? In 2014. Yeah. And we arrived and, to New Zealand in 2012. Yeah. And what was there in 2014 on the, where you have your garden? Um, so there has been on the farm, uh, there are olives and chestnuts and pecans and animals. And there's the uh, pre existing home orchard and, and other, and yeah, here in Genesis yeah. Garden was here. And, and we. So it was being farmed well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. farmed yes. well, organically, organically off-grid, managing yeah. your own water supply. And when we okay. joined in, um, we have established our market garden and then later our education center. As our own project within the farm. And basically. then father gave everything else together. Um, so in many ways, would this be like an ideal kibbutzim? Like you're in a community <laughs> of the farm, is that? Or am I stretching? It is in a way. I mean, it's, it's an small. Community. It's not like a whole kibbutz, you know, with a hundred families. Uh, yeah, or it's more. Um, but it it is, yeah, it is a, a community, and we love, yeah, being part of it. It's great. So it was a situation where um, you didn't start with a bare piece of paddock that had been running sheep. Um, so you joined did, our, our, our garden was so. our garden was literally a, a bare piece of paddock. Oh well, that's great. And we have calculated that uh, the area that we grow the vegetables on, where we can grow ten tons of vegetables, used to support two sheep. Am I correct? Maximum, yes. Yeah. So because you've gone from two sheep to ten tons of vegetables. Did that's you right. Yeah. Oh my goodness! So that's my question. What did you do to make the soil extra good? Um, so, I mean, we, we look at, at first of all, the, the larger landscape, and, and we used a lot of market gardening techniques based off our experience and what we've seen others do overseas. And so we have, uh, we're very influenced with the grow biointensive movement um, and what the work we do in ecology action. We've really taken care of the soil with both... Um, uh, making sure that there's no hard pan and increasing the organic matter and intensively planting. Um, and so we have uh, designed our garden beds. So most of them are perpendicular to the slope. So that's the kind of the first thing to keep the nutrients and to keep the water from eroding the soil. So we can build that up. We used a lot of compost. Uh, we've used about five to 10 centimeters of compost in the first couple of years and then moved to about two and a half to five centimeters of compost a year. We only use hand tools. We mostly use a garden fork or a wide garden fork um, to aerate the bed. So minimum intervention and tillage. We grow very intensively. We have between usually between three to even up to eight crops in the same garden bed in the same year. One my after the other. Three to eight crops. Oh my yeah, goodness. So basically something goes in, um, but the moment it, need, it comes out, um, we put something else in. Sometimes we even interplant and, and plant a new crop into the other crop as a nursery. Really um, so similar to companion planting. Things. We rely both on direct sowing and on transplanting. Uh, we've got a lot of little, a lot of little and big tricks that we use to make this work. Uh, we also um, use um, broad spectrum fertilizers, so things like seaweed, like rock dust, so natural amendments that are suitable for organic production because we're certified organic, and um, working with soil tests to fine tune what we need. 
Um, we did a lot of biological inoculants in the beginning, um, less so recently because we needed less. Uh, we've improved our watering system that really helps a lot build soil. Um, we will occasionally introduce uh, biological control as well. So totally uh, bringing in parasitic wasp to, um, you know, to control aphids in the tomatoes, things like that. And we could have done, I can say, there's other things we can do to even make things better and more uh, healthy oriented to for our soil. But we also had to be kind of, uh, we are commercially oriented because we sell most of our produce and we make our living from our gardens. And so... We, we make compromises like everyone. And I think something that people have, I find really encouraging is that we also kill plants. <laughs> it's not <Yeah. laughs> that we're immune to that. Not everything succeeds. We but... also sometimes forget to get to that tray of plants that are ready to be planted. Oh, just don't get to it because we're optimistic. We can do more than we can chew. My, but, yeah. my wife accidentally dug up my little pumpkins that I'd been nurturing to grow. Oh. And I'd got them up this high, like an inch. <laughs> And I was so proud of them. And then she was working elsewhere in the garden. I wasn't there. Mm. And she dug over to get some nice soil and compost my pumpkins. Mm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> our marriage survived, has survived my yeah. loss of my pumpkins. Because I don't actually like pumpkins. Um, so I thought of all <laughs> the things fine. that I can do without, I can go without pumpkins. Tell me. They only you know, grow what you like. What yeah. Yeah. I know. But I thought I'll give it a go. So you have a slope. Yeah, and you've terraced it, and mm. that's what you mean by perpendicular, making yes. those terraces. Um, so it's not necessarily like a big terrace. It could be like every single bed on that slope being uh, perpendicular, and then has a little better. And that's what we've done with our first original part, which we've um, worked as much as we could on on contour. But then in our new gardens, we've actually terraced um, like a group bigger, of six to yeah. nine beds, and then made a bigger okay. better. And and what have you used as the barrier to the soil? Have you got so like woods? In most places, we haven't done a thing. We've just got um, like basically a small earth batter, and yes. so that and so on that slope, each bed uh, is just supported okay. by the soil, and we use minimum forking on the edges of it. And so with those beds, we tend to. Uh, put crops that uh, are transplanted rather than direct sowed. We tend to uh, plant things that stay there for a long time. We use mulches occasionally or plant in weed mats. So we've got different crops that kind of work better on the sl on the big slopes. And then uh, we don't really have flat beds, like per se, <laughs> flat, but it's all about varying degrees of slope. And also nothing is north facing too, which is uh, something I like mentioning. Some, so we have some on those bigger terraces, we have some that are... Uh, Con contained with untreated wood and we have some that are just have weed met on them and like, plants out of like the 54 beds in our main gardens two beds are terraced with wood so we've with chestnut um with uh chestnut landscaping timber which we got from a local mill uh, we would have used sleepers a bit more heavily but uh, cost wise um it's we can do what uh, like we as i said the, the economics of it we we can get away with what we're doing without it and so instead of adding another let's say 500 dollars yes. of sleepers per bed yes. um we can we can just do it the way we do it and you said they're not north facing yes no not nobody's north facing on our gardens just, um, just because we're in a valley and, and we've got a big hecatea tree on the north, uh, which also shades the garden really heavily in winter. So, in one of our gardens. Yeah, and, and also is, lots of rocks. I can tell all my problems too, if you like. <laughs> yeah. So you would prefer to be north-facing, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. the little solar panels of the plants would work better. 
That's right. Yeah. And you must do a huge amount of forking. So it's, I, I, that, yeah. I hope that didn't sound rude. No, I'm um, good. Uh, um, yeah. So I, I'll say that that when we start a garden bed for the first time, so when we've taken that paddock that was very compacted with a century of grazing, we have, first of all, put some weed mat or geotextile to suppress the grass and kill all the big weeds um, by preventing the plants from photosynthesizing. And then we took the one, we used sticks and strings to mark where the garden beds were. And then we used the fork and did very small chunks of biting with the fork, about five centimeters intervals, and then we did that only once. And then again, we for the first few years, we did that probably two, twice a year, sometimes three, sometimes once. And now we're in a rhythm that we only need to do that once a year um, oh, wow. in, the, in the autumn, winter or spring, because we've developed the soil structure. So with all that biological life and the roots of the plants and the organic, um, matter. And the organic matter, that all just improved our soil tremendously. So it looks nothing like the original um, soil that is just a few meters next to the garden. Isn't that amazing? Because we have our gardening guru, Professor Wally Richards, um, and he keeps telling me this is how you garden. And, of course, it's so counterintuitive to me because my father was a great gardener and Mm. I never learned to think from him, but he was forever digging it. Mm. There's so many ways of doing it and there's nothing wrong. It's just there are benefits to each system. It's better to use a fork. But it's also better not to, like, it's better to dig than not or dig if you need that air in the soil. Yeah. Yeah. What do you use for your weed mat? So we use um, UV stabilized horticultural grade geotextiles that we order from from uh, different horticultural suppliers. And then we just use that again and again. So the same fabrics we've used um, to cover our garden beds in the beginning, we still use them occasional rotation. So most, if if uh, we want to cover the beds for the winter because there's no sun, we'll put them on. If we want to, uh, if a bed got out of hand and uh, we don't want to see that headache, we'll we'll mow it and then put that on and wait another month or two and then have a blank slate again. Um, we use Amazing. it also for landscaping, uh, like the edges around the garden or for tunnel house structures. And you lay your weed mat down and you make a hole in it to plant the plant. So sometimes we used to rely on that a bit more heavily, influenced by some uh, uh, farmers overseas. I tend to prefer to just work with the soil and not plant in weed mat, but there are yes. amazing advantages to doing it. Um, we see we saw great success with our strawberries and with our summer plantings because it really heats up the soil and allows, while still allowing the moisture to get in, it suppresses weeds. Um, it, it's great for the plants. And, and if you make the holes big enough, it's nice for planting. It's just... We only use it for crops that that um, it works for us that stay in the ground for a long time. We have courgettes at the moment in weed mat. Yeah, and we were thinking that's the, almost the only crop currently in weed. Yeah, we could have we could have done a bit more, but um, we we don't rely on it. But it's another tool in our toolbox, depending mm. on, on what we want to do. Um, mm. So we see great results with it, and we also can get the same results um, or better results without it. So, and yeah. the weed mat that you use is uh, can be used over and over and over again yeah. yes wow. yes so we buy only, we use plastics in the garden but we use really high quality durable material so we don't use disposable things but yeah um yeah which we, we try and minimize it but but it is a tool that helps a lot i mean we would have loved to put a lot more organic mulch like leaves and organic straw and wood chips it's just 
um, it's hard to do it on the scale that we're doing. So resource. Yeah, so we do it according to how much energy we've got to be able to do it. How much area of garden do you have? So we now, um, um, as we expanded into the new garden, we have the, the possibility and we garden for one season with 1,500 square meters. We don't operate so that's about a third of an acre. And um, But now what we're doing is uh, we are still growing on a quarter acre, but what we did is we retired some of the most slopey south-facing garden beds in our main garden and used the new area that is also south-facing, but but a much better uh, sunny garden and, and easier to grow. So we're just growing about 1,000 square meters. West. West, southwest facing. Yeah, it's mm. really misleading because it gets uh, every, like it gets full sun throughout the because year. it's west facing. But it's, it's west, west south can't say that no <laughs> <laughs> um uh, and so yeah we, we are still growing on about a thousand square meters on a quarter acre just um change that's amazing between. and you produce 10 tons of vegetables yep yep yeah, yeah some years a bit more some years a bit less and um, that and that so. is you're in the coromandel that's right yes yeah. just outside of teams so it's good weather for growing apart from the fact you haven't got a north slope so I mean, the last year we had <laughs> rain pretty much oh, yes. the whole year, and we have, um, you know, we had uh, ex-cyclone Gabriel. Uh, recently, Lola came to visit us as well. So it it's not always easy. Just just the um, the flooding is a, is an issue. But mm. we do have. It is interesting because we're in a valley. We get about three hours less of direct sunlight than Tim's. But because we still get eight to twelve hours of direct sunlight, we can really support main season vegetables while also having an early morning shade, which actually makes it easier for us because we grow a lot of greens and salads that we sell locally, and so it actually gives us a nice harvesting window until like nine ten in the morning, and mm. so we keep harvesting. We get all of those delicate stuff before the sun hits, and then the quality is just so much better. And again, because we're in the valley, we do get frosts and and so forth. Yeah, we're not quite like a year. Yeah, we're still. I'm in Otago, and we got a frost (laughs) twice this week. No, yeah, it's been unusually weird. Oh wow! And that's not unusual. I mean, it can snow at this time of year. Oh wow! Into November, so it's tough gardening. Um, yeah. and, and I get warning because um, we have vineyards in the valley mm-hmm. and they have automatic big fans that come on, big diesel-powered right. fans. And so they come on at sort of 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning <laughs> or 4 in the morning, and it's like a jet engine taking off, um, protecting the moving the inversion layer. So you know, oh, it's a frost. And I think, oh, I should get up and protect my plants. And now oh, I roll over and go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll let nature take its course. Now, when you originally got your compost, mm. what compost did you use and how did you get it? Yeah, so we use different types of compost for the year. We also make a lot of our own. We've been making between 5 to 20 cubic meters a year. And recently, um, we've start, we've had developed a relationship with the local uh, fisheries and they uh, bring us uh, usually between 50 to 200 kgs of fish a week. So we make a lot of compost with that now. Wow. Um, but our original compost was, so part of our gardening system and closing loops is that we grow a lot of microgreens. So basically uh, g- greens that are not sprouts, but not baby leaf, something in between that we grow in potting mix or compost. And so for the first few seasons, we've used 
um, we've used organic potting mix to grow our microgreens. And then once we've grown our microgreens, we let them, we took all the soil with all the roots and plant material, let that decompose again, and then put that in our garden. So that initial potting mix uh, was really great. Um, since then, we've been using just organic compost to growing our microgreens. We found that to be our most cost-effective and our supplier changed from wholesale bags to, to small bags, and we couldn't really stand using that many plastic bags. So mm. we we try we adapted our systems a bit, um, and so yeah we we don't usually use compost that's fresh like we bought into the garden. We use it for microgreens, and then we put it on and we make oh. our own. And some sometimes supplement a bit more because we really want to make sure we have more compost rather than less to support so, that. Yes. They're not giving us fish; they're giving us the fish frames. Fish and... frames, yes, all the waste of the fish. Yes, yeah. yes. The fish. They they. Microgreens, explain them to me. People buy them for what salads, is it? Yeah, yeah. So they, they're very lovely. Um, they're, they're quite actually nutrient-rich. And so yes. basically, so we, we would plant a whole lot of seeds in a tray in, in organic compost, as Tom said, and they'll grow um, to Under the, 10 centimeters, yeah, just but, usually to the cotyledon stage. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, with most most of them. And then you just harvest them like that. So and the, you can have them, you know, use them as garnish or you can mix them into your salad or have them in a sandwich. And um, we do radishes and and uh, peas. And so they're also quite, yeah, nicely flavored. Yeah. And so then you take their uh, potting mix and the roots of those greens and then put them in your compost. Exactly. And yes. turn them over. And the potting mix that you use, where do you get that? So we 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 sometimes make our own, but again, just because there's so many things to do, we often buy it. So uh, we use Dalton's organic potting mix. Yes, um, that's a main a main source for us. We do have troubles with the supply, um, and yeah, we have played and we do intend on doing more of our own potting mix um, using our soil, our compost, um, potentially pumice or even sand from the farm next to the river. Um, yeah, we, we'll experiment. But uh, but that, that potting mix has been great. We've also reduced our need for potting mix a lot by increasing our, our garden slightly. We're able now to do more direct sowing of crops and less transplants. So we're actually using about a tenth of the amount of potting mix we did when we started. Um, and so we're being a little bit more wasteful in space by germinating all our plants straight in the soil, but it does save us quite a lot of work because our 15 meter long beds, it takes us five to 10 minutes to sow them. Whereas if we do transplants to then go to be planted in that same bed, it would take a bit of time to sow them into pots, take care of them and then plant them. Yes. And so we're being, and a, so, yeah. so you've got the soil in those beds as mm. good as potting mix over um, time. Yeah, in some ways, for sure. Um, the, the potting mix, we do see that there is a big difference between the different types of composts, um, but but we are able to sustain a really high level of fertility and yields with with even regular pot compost and not that that more premium potting mix as well. I think that if you think of a plant that's growing in a pot versus a plant that's growing in the soil, in the soil, it has excess to the whole soil so it's yes. we're in a plant because it's so limited that's why it has to be really really good that's why you need really good potting mix because that's all the plant is going to get yes. in, if it's in the soil water flows bacteria come and go air forms will pass you know it's got and uh, it's going to grow its root and excess a lot more than than a plant in, in a pot which is why it's 
it's not that the soil has to be like potting mix. It's just because yeah. of the constraint, it needs to be a lot richer. I also wanted to add that for the, compo the potting mix we are using, we're still adding broad spectrum minerals to the base mix because we don't find that it's good enough to support plants after the third week. And we mm. also use inoculants or add some of our own compost that's really live. And so we're just thinking of how can we inoculate those plants through the roots, through the leaves um, as exactly. early as possible. So then they have a much better support network as we're going. Do you test your soil for nutrients and pH? Yes, yeah. we've done that um, quite a few times, not every year, but most years. And when, whenever we need a new um, mix, fertilizer mix to be made, um, then, then yeah, we test it again and then um, get something that's specifically suited to the minerals that, that we're lacking. When we started off, we didn't do that. We just went with a, with a, a wholesale, like a big ton of, of broad spectrum fertilizer. Um, but, but yeah, we, we really want to prevent any limiting, limiting factors for more plants to be healthy and, and high yielding. When you inoculate the soil, mm. what are you inoculating it with? So various things. Um, so usually the custom mixes that we have or, or the fertilizer also comes already pre-composted and inoculated. Um, high quality compost, especially ones that we make ourselves is very very full of life so a lot of people make compost and then use it immediately when it looks like good soil but leaving it for about two or three months after that to let the life become more and more complex actually makes the compost not just a good source of organic matter and nutrients but also of biological activity we also use different types of liquid feeds so either we we uh, mix our good compost with water and spray that we sometimes use molasses sprays we use seaweed sprays we use occasionally fish sprays um, there are also different bacteria, inoculants that you can buy. We used to source it from a company that doesn't sell it at the moment, but there are many online um, so that you can you can get those uh, similar to probiotic pills for your garden yes. or potting mix. Um, and and we think we've we have got um, a really wide range of of animals uh, living in our soil at, at this time, and even we can see that. Uh, problems that we used to have and we're not saying we won't have them again but uh, but aphids for example we have a really we've created a really healthy uh, ecosystem that that supports beneficial insects uh, but i think i'm going uh, we have a lot of ladybugs that's for sure yeah because <laughs> you can tell too that i mean i've my where i am where i've got my garden had been sheep pasture mm. and I picked an easy spot. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and it happens to be the clayiest place oh. uh, on the whole thing. I, you know, there's a few things I did wrong and very windy, mm. um, which I discovered. And I've got, I'm growing like 500 beach trees. Yeah. I've, I've love got the wind. In, yeah. And I've got them in pots. Um, and that's where I got interested in. Um, inoculation because mm. I you realize that in a beach forest mm. there's fungi and microorganisms that live symbiotically with the beech trees and mm -hmm. provide them with nutrients. And I um I have actually gone out into the beach forest and gathered up some detritus mm -hmm. and spread awesome. amongst the trees. But the nursery man uh, down in Invercargill said he felt that, you know, because they've had a nursery for over 100 years, that he thinks it's actually pretty good. But you get very conscious of this, and I get very excited because even 
even in a year, I have seen the soil improve somewhat. I've got mm-hmm. a way to go. Yeah. And of course, you notice that as you grow things, that too improves the soil, just growing things. Mm-hmm. Um, improves it. I'm still learning about the savagery of the cold. And we get very short days. And now I'm actually dealing with hot, hot sun. So, um, you know, it, it, the sun beats down. So I'm going to have to now put up, I think, some shade cloth because I can see my little leaves turning up there, turning up their ends, thinking this is a bit, a bit hot. Um, so you learn all these things, but it is a, a, a wonderful experience. And I was interested in your inoculation. When you get your fish frames which are the rubbish after they've filleted the fish yeah so it'd be like a fish head fish bones fish tails fish scales what do you do with them so uh, we'll <laughs> be able still to an test- experiment in yeah because and- we've been only doing it for a few months and we've tried a few different things um we have we have um yeah, we'll be able to tell you a lot more about it next year if we would like to talk to us again. Um, <laughs> well, are you still experimenting? <clears throat> totally. What I can see now, though, is that um, mixing, so we, we're trialing different layers of compost. We're also not mechanized. So if we had a tractor or a digger, which we can't really justify for other uses, that we would have done that. But basically, we're looking at how to make this um, using our current systems and tools. So uh, we found that we can use... Um, uh, big plastic drums and and then cut the bottoms and the tops and then layer it out with different ingredients. So put a layer of fish, put a layer of, um, we use wood chips or sawdust, we use garden waste, um, and then we, we layer those. And then uh, we found that it does, while it heats up really well and keeps temperature really high, we find that turning it is, is really useful in this regard. So we don't usually turn our compost. Uh, we also add biochar quite a lot, and so charcoal we made specifically as a garden amendment, and we also add a bit of ash. And so we're finding that turning the compost is really helpful. Um, again, if we had uh, if we had uh, more machinery, we would have maybe done this a bit more. But um, yeah, and then it heats up again. And what and what I'm seeing is that the fish frames and the fish heads are pretty much disintegrated completely. So wow. five months in from our first compost, I don't see them at all. Um, so it's just it still feels. It still has a really strong fish smell and it's still not fully decomposed. Um, so we'll keep experimenting with different um, carbon material, but it looks great. And I'm sure that um, it's, 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 it's the start of the end of us needing to get compost from outside of the farm, or except maybe for, for microgreens growing. One thing we're going to try as well is to introduce composting worms um, into the into those. Yes. Okay. So while we keep learning, like we we keep experimenting, and it is exciting to always find new things to do differently. Um, and we also keep learning from students who come to our workshops and events. So we're really um, not closed-minded. And even when we teach, we try and share as many like approaches mm. to doing this the same thing and getting mm. the results you need. So a person who just came to our workshop last weekend uh, suggested look if I um, I've had I've done a lot of fish composting uh, worms are amazing with fish so keep the the moisture high and get uh, get the worms in and so that's going to be one something new that we'll be doing we'll also be doing soldier fly um, cultivation on the fish frames and 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 then feed that to the chicken something we've done in the past we're a little bit reluctant to to keep growing more of those grubs but but uh, it is an amazing source for the chickens and I think we can make it work 
Uh, we also maybe in the future get, we've got our chickens in a separate area close to our other garden, which in an, maybe in the future we'll also get the chickens into that same composting area so they can eat what they want. They'll poop, they'll compost it, and then we will both feed our chickens directly and make compost. Um, yeah, we'll be experimenting, and it's it's going to be an space. What you're saying about the design mm. is quite crucial because you don't have a tractor. Mm. Totally. So um, I did a lot of composting with horse manure that I was mm. able to get locally. And um, I literally got truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of it. And um, as as the little truck would tip it off, I'd spread out some organic matter and wet it. And I built up a you know a pile of, a meter high, and it went to fifty degrees Celsius. I couldn't believe yes. it. And then I had a worm farm, so I kept feeding in excess worms. Awesome. But when it came to turning it, uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought I'm not, I can't turn that. It's like it just would defeat me. It was I had such a lot. However, um, it got really hot and then obviously it burnt through and I and I'm still using it. And I've just got some this morning and uh planted some um trees out with using the compost and it's still got the worms in it and it's still nice and damp and it's it's like soil. Awesome. And it's such a wonderful feeling because I get a bit annoyed going off to the shop to feel as though I've got to buy fertilizer and things, if you know what I mean. Totally. Um, I sort of feel as though I should be able to cope. But um, I understand now when you're saying about design and integrating it with your chooks um and that and the grubs that is uh, very very clever because like i said i have got a bit of space and i've spread things out and i look at it and i think i made a mistake there because i'm carrying everything so far mm. have you got for your quarter acre plenty of water yes we have and i'll just say that for our chickens still make about five to eight cubic meters of compost a year which we mostly use in our orchard but sometimes we also use in the garden beds but then we just we need have to, to compost we compost it or just compost. or wait 90 to 120 days before yeah. harvesting from that bed so um yeah we, we do a lot of you do a lot of shoveling and forking, we do right? a lot of shoveling and i did our, our chicken gate just uh, broke down and i've decided to make the chicken new chicken gate wider enough so i can get a digger there occasionally ah. <laughs> So we can shovel that out. How many chucks have you got? About 25 and about five geese at the moment. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, plenty, plenty of eggs. And, and they really work well uh, with the garden system. When you, who are your customers for your veggies? Um, just people from town. So we sell our, um, our, our full range at the Thames Organic Shop. And then we also sell mainly salad and microgreens at um, a, a lo their local green grocer at a shop in Taiwan. Yeah, and uh, Westock Deli in Tianga. And then we have a local cafe, Melbourne Cafe, that we've been stocking twice a week since the very first week we started selling things. My since goodness. 2014. Um, and then, so, so people, yeah, I think people in our area are quite. They're just kind of used to having our 
salad, you know, as a staple yes. by now. And uh, we know that, you know, that it, people will budget to be able to buy that. Uh, because we it's, it more, salad it's more expensive, right? It's, I, I, I mean, if you would find the equivalent in, in other big cities, uh, you would find it at the same price or more. But it is it is more expensive than supermarket salad. Because it's yeah. a it share. And, and it's organic and it's food nutrient dense and all the amazing things that that this quality salad has um and, and so of course the more amazing we... to support so many families are eating this this really healthy yeah. um yeah healthy salad so you're not selling directly to the families you're actually supplying retailers so we try different things over we, the years yeah, over the year we've, we've done markets and we've done veggie boxes but um at the moment yeah the best thing for us is just to go to yeah small retailers We've also been um, busy with some other projects uh, like besides writing, writing mm -hmm. and workshops, and we're also building a house. So at the moment, we're still operating our garden as normal, but we are changing a little bit of how we do things to accommodate our changing needs. So mm. uh, we're working mostly as owner builders um, on this house. And so, okay. yeah, markets don't, don't suit at the moment. Tell us then about your workshops and seminars and teaching. And from there, or maybe you start the other way around, and from there, your books, because they look fascinating. So what's best, to start with the books or to start with the workshops? Maybe we'll start with the books, but I'll just um, I'll just plug in for a very short time that you asked about our water. So we get almost all our water from the hills above the gardens. Yes. So we have um, springs that turn into creeks that we dam, and then we capture in our big tank, and then gravity feed into our gardens. So that's our main uh, wow. water supply. Wow. Um, so we have written two books, uh, The Abundant Garden that came out in 2021. One. And book. The Abundant Kitchen that came out this year. The Abundant Garden is a comprehensive guide to regenerative home gardening. The Abundant Kitchen is a comprehensive guide to uh, making ferments, preserves, and pickles. And so both of, our, both of these books are... Um, We've put everything we know and everything we love and everything we wish we could find in a book in them. And yeah, you tell me what do you want to say? No, that's awesome. Um, I'll, I'll open it for questions and then I can talk more. Yeah. Um, so how did you... Oh, that's my stupid phone ringing and I don't even know where it is. I apologize. No worries. No worries. Yeah. Um, I got so interested in the conversation i forgot to turn my phone off i do apologize i um you do a lot and you're building a house oh my goodness so why would i buy your gardening book um so you would join um over fourteen thousand people who did uh, if you know 14 <coughs> Yes, it's a uh, it it was uh, number one bestseller for two weeks in the New Zealand charts and, and stayed in the bestseller list oh, for many goodness. many weeks and was yeah. the tenth bestselling book of two thousand twenty one. Um, it's it's an amazing gardening book. We uh, we wanted to title it uh, the best gardening book ever, but uh, the publishing team uh, had come up with this amazing name of Abandoned Garden, and it's both very beautiful and extremely practical and informative. And so whether you're just starting out and you need some ideas of how to design and start your garden or whether you have a garden and you need those tips, like why would I do this that way? Or what do I do if this is my context? Um, it's all there. It's really, really because 
massive. The the gardening I've bought is like you start cooking and you end up with too many cookbooks. <laughs> um, they tell a joke that in the old days in New Zealand, everyone had one cookbook and cooked every night. And now yeah. they say that the average house has like 25 cookbooks and eats out five nights a week. Um, so it's easy to go overboard on the books. But I notice the gardening books tend to be, oh, I got the I, I got Wally's books, Wally Richard's books, and then I have the local Otago Times. Otago uh -huh. Daily Times have produced a book for over a hundred years, nice. and I love it because it's designed for Otago. Because uh -huh. I was reading these things and thinking, you can't be planting that in Otago hmm. this time. But it tells you week by week what to do, but that becomes its flaw because it tells you week by week what to do. None of them are really good at telling me about the design. Yeah, so that's and where the building uh, of the soil. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's not necessarily that week by week, but it is working to your context, to your situation, and your time is just, running. No, just grow. giving our best our best tips on garden design, on healthy soils, how to start, propagation techniques, productive planting, weeding, watering, specific vegetables information, crop rotation. Uh, plant health, compost, going microgreen, seed saving, and fermentation at the end. So it's just breaking it. We we really was insp were inspired by our workshops where our aim is to uh, um, give people um, all the, the important information, essential information, what it takes to have a really thriving garden. And we find that a lot of beginner gardeners then have a chance to start with less mistakes and, and very experienced gardeners can find a few gaps in what we're doing that can really up their game. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, it's really been based on and a lot of events we've had here on the farm and a lot of people's questions. And then in the book, we can just go into so much detail and incorporate so much research. And we love taking a lot of like where there's a lot of information to give and to find um, a very approachable way to explain it. So that's kind mm. of what we like doing is making information that might be a little bit overwhelming, otherwise mm. really, really accessible. And and I think that's and, part of why the book did so well. And I can buy that book from your webpage? Yes, Definitely. or from yeah. all um, all bookshops, in most, if not all bookshops in New Zealand yeah. will sell it, oh, as well as libraries. Definitely in Otago, you'd be able to to find it as well. I, but I and, imagine you get more money if we buy it direct from you. It, you? Absolutely. It, it does help, yes, but anywhere does. you source it is awesome. Yeah. And tell and, me your ferment book. Yes, so The Abundant Kitchen, I'm, I'm showing it to you, but of course this is audio, so... Uh, the abundant kitchen is um is 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 a mess it's massive actually it's it's actually bigger than the gardening book uh, because it covers a lot of different practices so it's got uh, lacto fermentation and pickles kombucha jan and ginger beer mead making so we make our own alcohol it's good fun and um, vinegar sourdough um, koji and miso, which yeah, uh, maybe a lot of people are not familiar with, but it's a, a cool thing. If you are already fermenting and experienced, and you want to try something completely new, that chapter mm. is definitely for you. And then you know, just stocking up the pantry with preserves and and condiments, uh, curing meat and and drying, and um, again, a very very comprehensive book. Um, so whether you're just starting out and you want to you know find one or two of these practices and build your your skill around them or whether you're already doing fermentation and you want to try something new a big focus for us was using local ingredients and as much as we could you know things we can grow in the garden um 
So while we're using these practices that are from all over the world, it is very suitable for people in New Zealand specifically. Mm. Um, anything else you want to add? That's awesome. We had so much fun working on this book and um, yeah, taken longer to make sure that it's all bang on. And we've grown a lot, almost all of the food you see in, in that book, uh, we've grown here on the farm. So we've taken the challenge uh, to grow as much as we could for it. And um, and yeah, it was an amazing experience. And, and, and the team at Ellen and Anwin was yeah, also amazing. amazing. And Aaron McLean, um, who did the photography, is amazing. And we like to say that fermentation is like gardening in the kitchen. So yes. it's, again, a lot about creating those habitats and inviting the microorganisms to mm. work with you to create mm. these things. So you take your produce from the garden, from one living system, and you put it into another living system. And it's really... For us, it's it really felt like those two books. You know, they this is a completely follow up. Yeah, yeah. Because we often yeah. will also have excess produce from our gardens, whether we deliberately grow on something for preserving or fermenting later, or we just have an abundance of something. So how do we capture it? So in the book, we've got all the different methods of how we do that, and basically how we eat, or in some ways, how, uh, yeah, for things that are here in the kitchen. Uh, and what we eat. So while we also have busy lives, we find the time to occasionally make a big batch of something. And then as we have several different types of things, we can easily put them out on the table to make a quick, really nourishing meal. So mm -hmm. we'll often, yeah, just, just open a couple of jars with a bit of, of rice cooked with broth. And that's that's an amazing meal with some salad on the side. And, and, and since I started fermenting food and making broths my health has changed dramatically mm. um it's amazing particularly bone broth um mm. and just making lovely soups that are properly made with a proper broth rather than just a cube from the supermarket made a big difference to me Ooh, and we yep. have a bone broth recipe in the book for, good. for a lot of uh, research about this never taken many months and many days of just looking at not just what common practices and what other people recommend but actually looking at the science the scientific yes. research about what is the best ratio and what is a myth and what is not and so yes. both chapter was specifically interesting about that mm. now tell me about your workshops um, so, yeah, since 2016, uh, based on our gardening experience and also workshops we've taught before in other places, um, we we teach a variety of home gardening workshops, market gardening workshops, so for people who want to make an income from selling vegetables. Or, or maybe people who are managing a market in a community garden, garden or going on a larger scale. So the... Totally. Because um, we use our gardens are, are really like a big, a very big home garden or a very small mm -hmm. farm. So we're in that intersection that most of our techniques are really suitable for home gardening. Uh, we also do fermentation workshops. Um, so really exciting. We've taken the opportunity that this book came out to relaunch our fermentation workshops and have a workshop that's specifically for beginners and specifically for advanced fermenters. We've got a few events um, in Auckland and in Christchurch. We'll be in Christchurch. In oh, Italy, you go on the Italy. road. You yeah, go on the road to do them. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah, and hopefully we'll be in Australia next year. And um, yeah, and we also teach online. So we've got our home gardening, market gardening, and fermentation workshops online. So we really try and make our information accessible. So our books are an amazing opportunity and a low-cost one. Uh, and a special experience on our farm with workshops is another um, online workshop. So you don't have to travel to get access to the information and support from us. We mm -hmm. also launched this week 
um, our tours again. So we are open back again for tours so people can book in to garden tours or consultations for our website. So and we're really trying... that can be on farm also or online. Yeah, so we're yeah. just really trying to help people out wherever they are because we're really passionate about growing and fermenting and together making um, a culture that is uh, more resilient and more sustainable and, uh, and the buzzword regenerative too. <laughs> well, I have to say, and I don't know how to word this appropriately these days, but you both are amazingly, I can see you, others can't. You look amazingly healthy and you're amazingly happy and joyful. So you're a, a testament to your garden, if you know what I mean. Thank you. That's that's very kind. And that's pretty the approach we wanted to go for when we decided what to do. We wanted to live the change we're advocating for. Um, so mm. we that's why we wanted to live on the farm. We wanted to grow vegetables. We wanted to have an education center. We wanted to say you can grow a lot of food on a small piece of land in, in regenerative ways. You know, we, it was really important for us to be, yeah, to be living this and to be showing that this. And it's not all perfect. It's not a simple journey. It's not a paved road. <laughs> You know, messy and uh, all of it, but but it is, yeah. on the, in its essence, um, a really good and exciting thing that that we genuinely think is 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 something worth sharing and being happy about. And so, if people go to your webpage, um, they can find those tours, they can find those um, workshops, workshops and books, find the books, everything and, and gonna, on the website. And, and people can also join our newsletter and find us on Facebook and Instagram okay. and TikTok um, and YouTube. And we're also having some really exciting uh, social media happening uh, over happened in the, over the last month. Um, I've I don't got know it you... again. When I look at the word, I can do it. Packer Racker Farm. You can do all it. One word. P-A-K-A-R-A-K-A -A -A Farm. All one word, .co.nz. And it's all there. And you'll see um, Neva and Yotam. And you'll see what I'm saying, that they just look a picture of rude good health and what it is to live a good life uh, close to the soil and a soil that is a living soil, um, providing all the nutrients and the life that you need and then fermenting food so that your little belly gets all the microorganisms that it needs. It's wonderful. Before we go, I would like to ask you about your glass houses. Awesome. Tell me about that. What do you use them for and how are they set up? So we only have passive um, tunnel houses. We don't have glass houses. Yeah. And we use them to grow our microgreens. Uh, in season, we grow uh, tomatoes and cucumbers. This year, we're trying watermelons in the tunnel house. We're quite excited to see how that goes. Uh, and seedlings. Mm -hmm. And this year we're also doing ginger for the second oh, year. We... And so our, our structures are not heated. So basically we get a forced free garden, mostly guaranteed for about four or five months of the year. But mm -hmm. uh, we use a lot of hoops and cloches. So if you would come to our garden in September, it's pretty much all covered in hoops and cloches because um, it's too cold to establish plants in the winter. Um, but um in our tunnel houses, yeah, then in the winter we grow salad greens and spinach and coriander and beets and all those other exciting stuff. And this year, 
Um, this is now the eighth season that we're growing tomatoes in our tunnel house. Um, and we are using a lower and lean um, trellising system and hard pruning. And we use a lot of organic metal. And this year, for the first time, we've done a new experiment growing our tomatoes in wool. So we've used wool from our sheep, from our Rodney Wiltshire sheep um, that we've gathered for a few okay. years. Romney, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, and that we are, yeah, last year we did, we we grew clover in between our tomatoes. The year before we've used wood chips. The year before we've used wood mat. Um, the year before we've just had a very heavy munch of compost. So this year it's wool. And what's exciting about this is that um, is actually how popular um, this notion became or how shocking and strange it is. So we've just taken, maybe you can tell the story. You just took a, I don't a, think it's that important. I think it's just a oh, great, I'm a great anecdote. Now you started me. Well, you have to tell me the anecdote. I just, so we, we've put down the wool in the tunnel house and because um, I run our social media, I just took a photo with my phone and I put it out on Facebook and uh, it's been seen by 10 million people and people no. over the world have been commenting. It's bigger on than it. Justin Bieber. <laughs> just the one post you know just that one post that people just went wild for and it was really interesting and i think it was um several things firstly it's just like you know and un very unusual to see uh tomatoes in wool but people have been sending us pictures from them for from their gardens where they have been using wools and um, have been doing it for years a lot of people talked about yeah feeling similar to us where they have sheep but there's nothing to do with the wool and sort of going Oh, finally, something I can do with it because it's it's just not worth selling anymore. Um, we have low, also low grade sheep. Every too. every kind of yeah. Well, it's not merino. So you just you, you, right? you have your tunnel house. It's a walk-in tunnel house, or a we yes. a walk-in yes. tunnel house. You have a raised garden or a garden on? The uh, no, in ground. So when we've made it, uh, when we designed our gardens, we've made a. a uh, a flat pad for a tunnel house, put, pushed all the topsoil to the other side, leveled the subsoil, then put the topsoil back on, spread it all around, and then kept adding compost and fertilizers over the years. Okay. And then when you come to use the wool, you lay the wool on top of that? Yes. Yeah. How thick? Um, so we have used... Um, let's say when we started, it was it was it was ten to fifteen centimeters thick. When we ended, it was between five to ten because we were stretching out our three full uh, bales <laughs> of wool. Um, but um, yeah, it, and it, what it does is it keeps the moisture really well in the ground. It's a slow release f um, fertilizer for yeah, both nitrogen and iron and other minerals. Phosphorus, uh, I think. I think so. Um, and then also, it's um, it's like weed suppression. And it reflects light. Um, it's comfy to walk on. It it does deter slugs and snails. So we've started using it around some of our other plantings, like our young courgette plants outside. Uh, we saw good success with that. We think that it will probably not decompose for about two years. So by the time the tomato comes out, we will gather it again and either use it uh, on another crop in the tunnel house or use it outside with crops like strawberries, which will grow another big batch or this, take it this to winter. The orchard, um, yeah, I think we'll use it in the garden for a bit longer. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been cool. Uh, it has a bit of gorse. <laughs> and <a> bit <laughs> do you, do you, um, you put the seed in the soil and the wall on top? So what we've done is we've transplanted into it. So we've okay. actually, uh, actually we've transplanted and then put the wool around the plants. Got it. Um, yeah. And the there's plants a video, as well. If you want to see, there's a but, video on our Instagram. I think we've got the full Instagram. update already. Oh, you're, you're so social media savvy. Oh, my goodness. Instagram, Facebook. <laughs> you, are you on Twitter? 
no, but we started on TikTok. You started last time. Ah, <laughs> yeah. um, when you're bringing in Dalton's pudding, mm. say, or bringing in fertilizer, let's say, and this is advice for home thing, not necessarily what you're doing, but for generally, do you have to be careful its origins? Always, yes. I mean, we really advocate for using organic certified amendments because they go for another level of scrutiny to make sure that they're yes. good. The other is to make sure that the amendments you're putting in um, are actually designed to go in a vegetable garden because a lot of times it's not and it's not balanced. Uh, always best to test with a small batch um, and like or put a small amount, see how plants react to it because some compost, for example, are actually weed killers um, and, and they create such a big imbalance. We also advocate for using amendments uh, as per the name, it's just amending the soil. It's not replacing or growing media. So we don't put, um, we try and put our amendments in small amounts and do it often. So a few times a year, rather than put a huge bulk amount, which then can okay. overwhelm the soil and the microorganisms and pick things off balance. So we try and put one or two centimeters layer of compost most of the time and a small sprinkle of fertilizer and just do that three, two, three, four times a year and every year. And then that slow um, use of amendments really improves things. Got it. And would you have a concern, say, oh, I don't know, I'm picking an example here. Um, you might go to the local hen house and they've got a lot of manure or a sheep farm mm. and they've got manure or a horse paddock mm. and they've been madly spraying Roundup or whatever. Is that a worry? Yes, I would say that one of the advantages of getting things locally is that you can talk to the farmers. So, for example, yes. uh, if the horses have been drenched in the last few weeks, maybe it's worth not taking the manure. If it's been a month after, that's safer. Uh, there are specific research and, and more accurate numbers than this. But I would say that most grazing systems are not heavily based on spraying things. Yes. Most, um, And so it's just worth researching. Uh, I mean... Animal products are an amazing uh, way to integrate into the garden, but always better to play it safe. If you're not sure, use it for the orchard, which the, the roots of the plants are a lot more robust. Always yeah. better to compost it because for the composting system, it gets more balanced and and, and most toxins yes. break down uh, and become a lot more available. I see. I see. So yeah. if you're composting, that's a good safeguard. And your, your fish from the sea, of course, is perfect. It is. It is. I mean, exciting, uh, yeah. yeah, we also, um, yeah, one of the tips, a low cost tip to increase the nutrient levels in your soil is to go and gather clean seawater and dilute that one to 200 and, and um, put that in your soil, which will then help bring the nutrients up without uh, bringing the salts up too much. And also mm. I'll plug uh, AgriSea, which is a company that we get seaweed products from and we know that they you know, gather the seaweed in the most sustainable way and um, and they make really great products as well. Mm. There you go. There. Well, thank you for your time. Um, you have been inspirational. Your webpage is wonderful. Your books look fantastic. Um, you're a great advertisement uh, for your farm. Uh, thank you for sharing your morning with us because uh, you've got a lot on. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I've been talking to a wonderful couple, uh, Neva and Yotam Kay, and they're at Pakaraka Farm.
practicing permaculture, regenerative farming, you can go to their webpage, which is Pakaraka Farm. I'm going to spell it one last time. P-A-K-A-R-A-K-A farm, all one word, .co.nz. Please go there because you'll love reading about them. You'll love reading about the farm and the permaculture. And if you have an interest, I'm sure you'd like the book, uh, the two books. Um, wonderful, wonderful couple. Isn't it amazing in New Zealand uh, and indeed around the world what people are doing, what people are getting up to? And I guess in many ways we're rediscovering what we once always used to know. And um, we're having to use science to get to it rather than just do it like we've done for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thank you for listening. Remember, drop me a text 2057. Email me inbox at Reality Check Radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.